Where's Michael? Mike and I were talking about this yesterday. Uh, he had some questions about it, and Phil and I were talking to him at individual times, and I told him that, that the, the greatest doctrine in the Bible, without a doubt, is the doctrine of the Trinity, because it is the basis by which everything rests on. And, you know, not only is, is that the pattern of things that God does, but it's also uh, the structure by which God builds everything in the Bible on. And one of the unique things about the Trinity, and I guess, Mike, this is why a lot of people can't grasp it, they can't, they can't conceive of uh, a God splitting himself up into three distinct persons and yet being the same being or the same God. Now, personally, I've never had a problem with that. I mean, uh, I've never seen how a brown cow can eat green grass, give white milk, but he does. See, I mean, life to me is a lot simpler than letters with a lot of other folks. I believe what the Bible says when the Bible says that God can do anything. There's nothing too hard for God. And if God chose to do it that way just because I can't figure out how He does it, doesn't mean He couldn't do it. If I could figure everything out God did, then He would need to be God and I could be. But I don't figure everything out. But I do know this. I know the Bible, I know there has to be a trinity and there has to be an absolute trinity by which everything is based on because the Bible is just like the trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they're all distinct, but yet they're all one. And when it comes to the Bible, you have 66 books, and each book is an individual book, but yet they're all one. See how that thing works? You can't have one without the other, Mike. And it's a thing where that's one of the... God, when He built His Bible, He built it on His own system of the Trinity. And except in the Bible, you have 66 books. So what we have been doing that uh, since we started our church, as you know, we have been focusing on, you know, helping you get to the place in your life where you really begin to grasp the concept of a New Testament local church and then been building through the process into your individual lives. And we do this a number of ways. But we have been building uh, the Bible itself into your life so that when you come away from it, you completely understand uh, how the Bible fits together and then, as I've said many, many times, you know, I'll spend an hour a, a week with anybody that wants to sit down and go through the Scriptures. Uh, if you want to be discipled, I'll set you up with somebody that will walk you through the basic fundamentals of the Bible. And uh, our goal here is to help you learn the Scriptures. So we're almost finished with uh, the books of the Bible. Uh, we're going to enter into the book of First John today. That's the uh, the epistle of John, that's not the gospel. This one's all the way in the back of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation. And uh, there's three of them back here, First John, Second John, and Third John. Remember, next week we'll be going through the uh, fall program and laying all that out and, and showing you where we're going from the Bible with that. So you'll, it'll be a, it won't just be a meeting where we talk about it. It's going to be based on the Word of God as everything that we do. But uh, we're going to enter into the book of 1 John today, a very important book. Now, last week, you remember, we studied the book of 2 Peter. And I, I gave you a short bio-sketch of the Apostle Peter. And I also told you that you can take each apostle and do what we call in Bible study a character study. A character study is taking a man or a woman or a child, king, queen, whoever, taking some person out of the Bible and studying their life in the Scriptures and then finding the parallels that fit into your own life. I told you this last week, and I've, I've mentioned it to you several times. 
We think because we live in 2005 and we're reading events in the Bible that took place up to seven, up to 6,000 years ago, you know, and maybe in time of Christ, 2,000 years ago, we think that because we're so far removed from that period of time that things are really different. The only thing is different is we drive cars, they didn't. Their clothes may be a little different. Uh, they maybe didn't have McDonald's and Hardee's and, you know, places to go and eat. Uh, it appears to be different, but the truth of the matter is man is always the same. Man's problems 5,000 years ago are the same problems he has today. And that's why character studies are so rich, because they show you that back then they struggled with the same things that you and I struggle with. And a lot of the ways to overcome the pitfalls of our lives is to simply learn how they fell into those traps. You can kind of get a bird's eye view of, of how, they how they got into it, why they shouldn't have got into it, and certainly you know, the consequences of getting into it, and, and many times God shows you how they can get out of it. So they're great studies. And last week we talked about Peter, and I told you that in some time in your life you ought to go through a, an intense character study of all the twelve apostles. And at the same time I'm telling you this, one of the greatest studies of the apostles you take is the apostle John. And of course we've talked about this before, and I showed you how that uh, the Apostle John is probably the most unique man in the Bible. And uh, his writings, now keep in mind he writes the Gospel of John, he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also writes the book of Revelation, the last book in your Bible. Not only is John unique, but everything he writes is unique. And I'm going to tell you why that is in just a little, uh, in a few minutes, but uh, I want to kind of lay the uh, groundwork here. And at some point in your life, you need to begin to study the life of John and see the character studies that go along with it. Because John represents, like no other man I know in the Bible, he represents exactly what your life and my life should be in every sense of the word, in every sense of the way, in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to find that the twelve apostles, and I've told you this before, some of you have heard it before, but a lot of you haven't. The twelve apostles really represent, I think anyhow, they really represent the kinds of Christians you have. You have three of them that anybody who reads the New Testament will call the inner three. That's Peter, James, and John. The rest of them they really don't, are not very significant. I'm not saying they don't do things and do good things, but I'm saying you don't find them showing up at all the key areas. They don't write any uh, books of the Bible uh, afterward. They're really not to the place like the inner three where they really seem to be plugged in. And of, and of the ones that are left, one of them is a phony, Judas. He's a picture of an unsaved man who goes to church every Sunday, or an unsaved woman who goes to church every Sunday, does everything everybody else does, but in reality has never had the life transformation of a relationship with Christ. So it's a great study. Those inner three, Peter, James, and John, are always experiencing greater things than the rest of the apostles. You can go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you can see they're always where the great spiritual things are happening. And you know what? That's true of this church, and it's true of every church. You're going to have within any group of people called a church where there's going to be some people who really find out where the action is and that's where they're at and others just kind of take it in stride, you know. And, and I realize that many of you are in the process of getting to that point, but it's still true. 
And you're going to find in every church in this city and around this country, you're going to find that churches basically break down like that. You know, John goes the distance when nobody else does. Because when Peter, we talked about him last week, when Peter denies Christ, when James kind of disappears from the scene, when Christ is being crucified and when Christ is being whipped and beaten in there with Pontius Pilate and the crowd, you'll find that John is right there in the middle of it. He goes all the way. And when Christ is hanging on the cross, the only apostle that goes the distance and is there with him is the apostle John. He's an incredible guy. John does something that no other man in the Bible can do. There, John does something that no other man in the Bible does. Now, in the Old Testament, we got David. And David probably is, in the Old Testament, is the contemporary of John in the New Testament. Because there's no man like David in the Old Testament. And the Bible says that David was a man after, after God's own heart. Mark the word after. The Bible says that David was a man after God's heart. But John did something that even David didn't do. And if you know the story as well as I do, they're down there at the Last Supper, and the Bible tells us in the Gospels account that John does something that no other man in the Bible had ever done. Truth of the matter is, the only people in the world that can do this are people like you and me, the church. That's why John represents you and me. You know what John does? John lays his head on the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ at the Last Supper, and he hears the very heartbeat of God. Now, you probably heard pastors all your life, if you've been to church and grew up in church. You've probably heard men or people on television or radio tell you that, you know what, you have to get God's heart. have to get God's heartbeat. John is certainly a man in the Bible who does just that. John does something that no other man in the Bible was able to do, or at least did. And the only people I know in the world today that can do what John did is you and I. That's why he represents us, that every child of God, every child of God that is truly saved, washed in the blood, and are on their way to heaven, should have as their goal in life to get to the place where you understand what God's heartbeat is. You can actually hear God's heart and know what God wants you to do in your life. John accomplished this because he had a very intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, you and I can do it because of the fact that God has given us a Bible. And if you and I ever get to the place where we actually find out what God wants us to do with our lives and then do it, we ever figure out this big old plan of God to the tune that we know where we fit in, and then take the rest of our lives doing it, it'll be because through this Bible we found God's heartbeat and God showed us where His heart is at and what He wants us to do. Now that's why we spend so much time teaching the Bible. That's why that is my job as pastor to make sure that everybody, I told this to somebody this week, I've talked to so many people this week, I can't remember who I said it to. I'm just hoping everything I said was true. But anyway, I, I've come through and I, I've told you over and over again that you know my job, my job as pastor is to help you get to the place in your life where you really find that heartbeat. If I don't give you the best shot, the best opportunity for every man and woman that's saved here this morning to get to the judgment seat of Christ and get everything that God has for you, that's my job. That's my only job. My job as pastor or the job of any pastor is to make sure that I give you every available opportunity that at the judgment seat of Christ, now I can't make you do it. 
But my job is to give you every available tool, every available opportunity that you produce the right personal relationship with God, the right marriage with God, the right family with God, and then through that God uh, takes your life and you, you fulfill in your life what God wants you to do. That's my job. My job is to produce men and women who replicate the Apostle John who through their intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ begin to hear and understand the heartbeat of God. And you see it in John's writing. That's why I'm saying his writings are so unique. Because of that intimate relationship, Matthew portrays Christ as the King of the Jews, Mark portrays Him as a servant, Luke portrays Him as the Son of Man, but John portrays Him in His most classic form. John portrays Him as the Son of God. John focuses on the most intimate aspect of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is that He was the eternal Son of God. And that's why John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And it comes on down and says, There was a man, it, it, the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. That's Jesus Christ. You can see the intimacy that John had when he wrote. Now I'll tell you something else. The Gospel of John is written for one reason. And the reason it's written is found in the last chapter and the last verse of John chapter 20, John uh, verse 31. And it says there, but these are, these are written, the Gospel of John, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, you may, and, and that believing you might have life through His name. The Gospel of John is written for one purpose, one main purpose, and that is for men to trust Christ as their own personal Savior. It is the most intimate of the four Gospel books, and John writes it. And when he writes the Gospel of John, he portrays Christ that men reading it will get saved. Let me tell you something. If a lost man or a lost woman will begin to read the Gospel of John, in time, you will get saved. That book displays Christ in such an intimate way, and God's Spirit has already told us that the reason why it was written, that you might believe that Jesus is in the Christ, and by believing that, you might have life through His name. And it's an incredible book. You're going to find that that's why you want to take one verse that people throw around about winning people to Christ. It's John 3.16. You know what? When men don't want to produce the whole Bible and they just want to give a portion of the Bible and in other languages or even in our language, you know what book they'll always print and pass out? Gospel of John. Gospel of John is a book that shows you Christ as your Savior and as God's Son. And now that's one of the reasons why John's book is totally unique. Now John is the only man in the Bible, and this is what sets him apart from everybody else. Even Paul to a certain degree. John is the only man in the Bible that when he writes, and he writes the last books of the Bible, he is the only man in the Bible that when he writes, he has all of the completed New Testament on the table before him. There is nothing else written after John writes. That gives him a very unique perspective that every other writer in the Bible didn't necessarily have. When he writes... He has everything in front of him that everybody else in the Old Testament and the New Testament has written. And so he comes at it and writes what he writes, 
and details out what he writes and shows us in a, in a very in-depth way what your life and my life should be when we have a completed Bible, that more sure word of prophecy, and his books detail out for us the things that we need to see. First of all, we saw the Gospel of John. We're moving our way into third John, first John here. First of all, we saw the Gospel of John. And that reveals Christ as the eternal Son of God and shows us uh, with the salvation that God has provided us. In 2nd and 3rd John, you're going to find that he deals with Israel directly in the tribulation period. And when we come through those books, and we're going to probably study those books together because they're small enough we can do it, you're going to find that how they impact the nation of Israel and uh, they pick up the themes of the Old Testament and carry them through. Then you have the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the book that he writes that really uh, lays out everything in the church age. He writes the book of Revelation in three tenses, past, present, and future. When he writes it in the tense of past, we see the church age. When he writes it in the present or the future, we see the Laodicean in church that you and I are in right now. And when he writes the book of Revelation into the future aspect of it, we see the rapture, the tribulation, second coming, millennial eternity. Everything is laid out because... John is writing with a unique perspective. He sees everything that you and I see because he has the completed Bible and he puts the finishing touches on it and he lays it out. And that brings us to the book of 1 John. Now remember the book of 1 John is a general epistle. You're going to see that as we've already laid out for you that these books directly uh, go to the nation of Israel. But boy, there is a lot of stuff in 1 John that lines up with what Paul writes and we can make some great spiritual applications here, and we're going to do that today. The book, 1 John, lays out two perspectives. First of all, it lays out the perspective of Israel suffering and going through the tribulation period. Second of all, it lays out you and I as New Testament Christians suffering and going through the tribulation of our lives. Each of us have things we struggle with. Out there tomorrow morning, and it may not even wait till tomorrow morning. It may be waiting for you when you walk out of this room today. But out there in this nasty old world lies every creeping thing that wants to destroy your relationship with God. You can have the best day in your life today and you can get all filled up with God and uh, think about this old world, man, you'll walk out there, boy, and it just take one phone call to ruin your day. That's this old world. And there's coming a day when the nation of Israel is going to have to go through Daniel's 70th week, that great time of persecution. And the book of 1 John is written to them and also written to you. Because we don't have to go through the great tribulation period as Israel does, but every one of us till Jesus comes back are going to have to go through the trials and tribulations of life on planet earth. You know what this book tells you? This book, tells you that first, uh, this book tells you that you and I can have fellowship in the midst of our tribulation. This book tells Israel that in the midst of them going through the great seven years where they are persecuted because of what they have done with the Word of God in Christ, that in spite of that, once they get plugged into where God is, they too can have fellowship. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. The book of 1 John shows you how to have the victory in the midst of your trials. And the key to the victory in your life and my life in the midst of the struggles that we are going through right now 
is nothing more than your fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the key. The key and I want to say it again. The key to your victory and my victory of staying in this planet and living on earth with all of the things that we got to put up with. And some of you, we all have various circumstances. Some of you have unsaved husbands that you'd like desperately to get saved. Some of you have unsaved wives or unsaved family members. Some of you have problems uh, in your marriage. Some of you have all kinds of circumstances. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm telling you. You can have victory over everything that the devil throws at you in life, but you cannot have victory without true Bible fellowship with him because that is the key to your victory. Now, I could just send you all home right now and you'd have probably the greatest thing that you've got all week long because that's what the book of 1 John does. Don't go home just yet because i got some other things I want to put with that. The book of 1 John is the defining book in the Bible on what New Testament Bible-based fellowship with Jesus Christ is. Now, the breakdown of 1 John is real easy. We always give you a breakdown chapter by chapter, and here it is. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 all are based around the aspect that you have victory through fellowship. Let me show you how it works. Chapter 1, fellowship in the light. Chapter 2, fellowship in love. Chapter 3, fellowship in life. And they're all built around your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how the Apostle John in every aspect is so unique? He fits in to your life and my life greater than any, any other apostle. It's an incredible individual. Then you have chapter 4 and chapter 5. They also deal where chapter 1, 2, and 3 deal with victory through fellowship. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 deal with the victory by faith. Chapter 4 is, talks about loving one another. Chapter 5 talks about our loving God. And the book is written to show you that true Bible-based fellowship with God is not based on loving God, and that's what you're taught today, but rather knowing God. If you went through the average bookstore in Kansas City today, or really anywhere in the world, and you picked up a commentary on the book of 1 John, and there's many, and you began to read through that commentary, and a commentary is a, is a, a man who writes about a book in the Bible that uh, hopefully will give you insight and help you break down the book. And uh, I've told you before, and I don't want to confuse you, there's no greater commentary on the Bible than the Bible itself. But it's never wrong to get and glean ideas from other men and women who learn from the Bible and you can learn from them. But if you would take your average commentary on 1 John, you would, and this is so typical, you would find that the, the, every writer will tell you that the theme, and every book in the Bible has a theme, the theme of 1 John is love. That's what they all say. You turn on the radio and hear doctors Swiggly over here, and he'll tell you when he comes through First John, the theme of First John is love. Uh, you'll go through everywhere you find. That's all you hear. That's all you read. And, of course, I, I remember being brought up in that, but when I was growing up, I was a lot like some of you are, and I wanted to learn the Bible. I'll never forget the first time I, I uh, studied the book of First John in depth. I went through, and I thought to myself, you know what? I want to see if that's true. So I began to look at each chapter, each verse. And I found out by, as I said, the Bible's the best commentary on itself. I found out that the theme of 1 John is not love. But the theme of 1 John is to know. 
I found in five little chapters, 27 times, where God uses the phrase to know, you can know, knowing. And that, that struck me. Because that, that it is so typical of, of the American way of life. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but there is a reason why, as a child of God, you should stay as far as you can from the world. Now, I know that some of you think that preachers just say that because, you know, they don't want you, you know, staying out late Saturday night and not coming to church. Well, obviously, you need to be in church, but the, that's not the bottom line. The bottom line is this. The more you hang out with the world, the more the world is going to rub off on you. It's as simple as that. And it's one of those things where you've got to learn and understand that uh, the world system of, of everything is totally degraded from what the Bible says. Now, you take the word love. If there's any word that has absolutely been apostatized and destroyed in its real meaning and concept in America, I'm not talking about Christians yet, I'm just talking about the world. It's the word love. Nobody today understands what that word means. And this is so true. And I'm telling you something. The reason why you as a child of God... Now, you can do what you want to do. And this is a sermon today that really won't make anybody mad. If you get mad at what I say today, you've got a real deep problem. Because this is just kind of coming through and laying some things out. But I'm, I'm telling you the truth here. This is why you need to stay away from the world once you get saved is because the world's influence will always rub off on you as a child of God without you knowing it. And it's so true. America's brand of Christianity is just like America's concept of love. Americans fall in love with things. And you hear it all the time. I hear God's people doing it. And I know God's people know better. And I know they really don't mean it when they say it. I give my kids trouble all the time. So much to the point now where they don't do it anymore, so it ain't no fun. But it, my point is, now I know my girls, and I know my girls love God as much as anybody. And I know they love the ministry, they love the Bible, they, uh, but I, 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 it's an example of how the world rubs off on you when you don't even know it. Because the world loves things. Oh, they do. You see it in the bumper stickers. I've always thought to myself that the mentality of any nation can always be determined by what's on the bumper stickers. <laughs> and I believe that. You know, you see bumper stickers on the back of pickup trucks that says, He that dies with the most wins. Now, that may look like a funny little thing, and we may giggle at that when we drive down there, but you realize that is a philosophy in American life? Another one you see all the time, the difference between men and boys is the number of their toys. Now, we look at that and we laugh, but you know that is a cultural mindset in America today? America, as a world system, believes that the more you get, the better off you are. Now, that's just the way that it is. And if you're not careful, you'll find that God's people fall into the same category. That's why Americans don't love people. Americans love things. 
That's why when a woman sees the house of her dream, she will make this kind of statement. I love that house. Guy goes out there and he watches television and sees the new RXV Mazda 29-ZX4321. And he goes out there and he says, whoa, I love this car. Guy goes over there and he walks into some place over there and sees a, a brand new uh, shotgun on the thing over there. And he likes to hunt and he says, man, he thinks immediately he can just see himself in the field. Pheasants flying everywhere, and he can boom, 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 and get his limit in 20 minutes and be back home for lunch. And he says, man, I love this shotgun. <laughs> well, at least there'll be one person come forward this morning in the invitation. <laughs> but leave your weapon in the back. <clears throat> Jimmy put on those pink <laughs> shoes this morning. Whose were those? Whose were those? Whose were those? Jamie's. My Jamie's? Yes. <laughs> and I saw him walk around there and he looked and he said, I love these shoes. <laughs> I've seen women say, I just love that dress. I love these shoes. Now I'm going to tell you something. I understand that. But let me tell you, there is a subtle philosophy that is degrading in American society that you lose the definition of the concept from the Bible of love when you spend your life loving things that cannot love you back. There's only two things in all of this world that are going to last for all of eternity. And I'm going to tell you right up front, boys and girls, and this may make some of you mad, they're the only two things worth loving. Because they're the only two things that are going to last for all of eternity. The new shoes you love will wear out. The new dress, you will walk in like the commercial, and you'll say, Honey, does this dress make me look fat? And he'll say, You betcha. Because he ain't paying attention. All the things of this world are going to go. There's only two things worth loving in this world, and one of them is the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, and the other is the souls of men. And when we come to the place that we, without even knowing it, we hang out with the world, we begin to take the world's definition of things. And I want to tell you something. This is why, and for those of you who are working with me in discipleship, and a little bit later on in counseling, this will answer a big question for you, why some people don't make it. And it's always a heartache for me when you try to work with somebody and you give them the best shots you can, but you know what? I understand that not everybody's going to make it. I understand. I, I, don't, I, I, I feel bad about it, but at least I understand why everybody doesn't make it. And the answer is simple. We have a problem that we love the things of this world more than we do the things of God. And when you try, and it's very subtle. And I didn't say that to take away the joy of buying a new dress or new shoes. I think that, ladies, that that's a, a thing in life. We all like to have new things, and there ain't nothing wrong with it. I'm not one of these preachers up here that preach against that. I'm making a point. And my point is this. If you're not careful with that kind of mentality, you'll wind up, and this is where 21st century and 20th century Laodicean Christianity has become, that you try to love God without knowing God. And that's where we've come today. That's why they don't make it. 
You take a young man or a young lady that comes out of the world today, and we've already had some in our short two years that are here. They come in, they really want to do what's right. I believe they'll come down many times and make a profession of faith, or they'll, they'll do something. To, but the bottom line is, you, after two or three weeks, you never see them again. And the reason why they don't is because to them, they just approach God like everything else in life. This is why marriages fail in America today. This is why young couples that get married only last two or three years. You see, in our generation growing up, nobody got a divorce. Man, when I was 10 or 9 years old, divorce was a terrible thing. Nobody did it except movie stars. But today, everybody does it. It's the easy alternative. And you know why that is? It's because that we try to approach relationships from a worldly position that we fall in love with somebody without getting to know that person. And when you fall in love with somebody in time, if you don't get to know him and love, what? how many times have I heard? Well, that's not the person I married. How many times have I heard? Well, he deceived me. He gave me one thing, vibe, signal this way, but after we got married, I found out there was another whole series of things. Now, that's the way God's people approach God. That's why it won't work. You see, we approach God like we approach getting married, or we approach this. We, we love God today. It's an emotional thing. We never get into the Bible. Nobody ever disciples us. Nobody ever helps us lay out the Scriptures. And so, it's just like when the shoes wear out, you love a new pair of shoes. When the car gets some miles on it, you trade it in for a new one. When the dress doesn't fit anymore or it wears out, you go buy another one. And you know what? When you love God today and you don't learn to know Him, the devil's going to have a better deal for you tomorrow and you'll just trade God in for that. How it works. You cannot fall in love with God. You have to learn to love God. Because when you learn to love God, you get to know Him. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to simply say it. To know Him is to love Him. And when you get to know Him, there is no way you're going back to the world, kids. I'm telling you. Until you invest the time in your life to let me or somebody else plug you into the Scriptures, get you discipled, get you taught, get you trained. And you know what? You may be sitting here this morning and you have made some, may have made some of them mistakes that I've already talked about. I don't care. God doesn't care. God doesn't care what mistakes you've done in the past. God only cares what you want to do with what you hear today. And you could have screwed your life up the, from one end to the other, and it doesn't make any difference, God will unwind it and untangle it at the moment you start to say, I'm going to learn to know Him. John learned to know Him. And when he learned to know who God was, he fell in love with God, and trying to fall in love with God and maintain a relationship and fellowship with God when you do not know God is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I tell people all the time when they come in and, you know, and I use it all the time because it's such a simple yet poignant illustration in a relationship, marriage, or relationship with God or whatever. People come in with me and, 
and they will come in and they will talk about some of the problems that they have, you know, and instinctively at some point I will say this. You know what? I said one day I came home from work and my wife told me that the refrigerator was broke. And she said she's going to call the repairman. And I said, well, don't do that because yet, because before we spend the money, I mean, uh, there's one of those little manuals that come with it that tell you how to troubleshoot it. Maybe we just got a switch, got a throw, or maybe there's something, we just got to hit it right, you know. So don't, you know, don't do that just yet. Let me, let me get it. So I go over here to the drawer, which is a library of manuals, open it up, and I start throwing them out. Boy, I got every manual in there, but I can't find the one for the refrigerator. So after about an hour and a half of fruitless search, I decide that I'll fix the refrigerator with a manual from the washing machine. Thank you. <laughs> you armed people really have it together back there, I'll tell you. One's right with God and one isn't. I'll tell you, I don't know how to deal this thing. You open that manual up and you start to look at that manual. What are the odds that I'm going to fix my refrigerator with the owner's manual from my washing machine? The odds aren't very good. Of course, knowing me, I could probably then wash clothes and keep food cold at the same time. But probably not going to happen. And by the same token as this, let me tell you something. If you're going to build a relationship with God and you're going to have a relationship with Him, you're going to have to get the book that He wrote you that tells you how you operate and how you get broke and then how to fix yourself when you get broke. And that book is the Word of God. And that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. And that's what John does. Now, Let's turn to First John chapter 1, and let's breeze through these, and we're in great shape. But with that kind of introduction, let's look at chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 very quickly here. But you have to get that before you can get this. Now, in chapter 1, we have here what I call the Christian Declaration of Independence. That's very important. I'm going to read it to you. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifest, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifest unto us. That which we have seen, and declare, and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Key verse. You want to mark that. We'll come back to it in a second. These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, 99% of God's people today in the world, and walk in darkness, about 95% of God's people in the world today, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses, from, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I don't know of any greater chapter in the Bible as far that contains everything you and I need to know to begin to have a relationship and a victory through the fellowship than this chapter. I just don't know. If there's some place in the Bible, I missed it. 
I'm telling you, this thing is one of the greatest things I've ever found. Now, I said this was the Christian Declaration of Independence. Now, a declaration is to declare something. In 1776, 13 little colonies got together and they kicked King George V out of America. And they made a declaration that they broke with England. And that declaration led to the Revolutionary War, which led to about 12, 13 years later to the writing of our Constitution and the Declaration of Our Independence, which was a formal document saying that we are no longer under the control of King George V. We now are on our own. We are a sovereign nation. We will sink and swim based on what we have, but we no longer are under the shackles or the oppression of the land of England. And I'm telling you something, there has to come a time in your life and you as a Christian declare that the shackles of this old world are not going to hold you in bondage anymore from what God wants you to do. And just as the revolution colonial soldiers shook off the shackles of England, you and I as the child of God at some point in your life have to shake off the shackles of this world and say, I am free. I am not going to be under bondage anymore. I am going to live my life the way God wants me to live and I'm going to begin to have that fellowship with Him that God wants me to have. Now that's what we've got here. And he says in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. Watch it very carefully. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. There is no joy in your life without the fellowship of God in your life. That's why some of you look like you've been baptized in dill pickle juice this morning. That's why God's people run around with all the doldrums all the time. That's why they're always into defeat. That's why they're always whining. They've always got some kind of problem. There's always something wrong in their life. And I'm not saying that once you really plug into God that you're not going to have problems, but you've got a better deal because you've got joy and the victory through your fellowship that you don't have right now. Because we love things more than we love God. I don't know what else to tell you. And then verse 7, which is probably the greatest verse anywhere in the Bible that defines what fellowship is. He said, now see, we, we think that, and churches are famous for this, and we think that fellowship is after the service we're all going to go out to eat. Now that's fellowship. We think, well, we're going to get together over at somebody's house this weekend. We're going to have a little Christian fellowship. That usually means you're going to order a couple of pizzas, sit down and play some games and have some fun. Hey, you know what? There ain't nothing wrong with that. Call me. I'll come. I, I, that's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the Bible fellowship that he's talking about. You've got to have one-on-one -on -one wherein lies the joy and the security and everything that God has for you. Chapter 1 is written to show you that real Bible-based fellowship with God is not based on your spiritual fantasy of what you think God is like. Or loving God like you love a puppy. Or a new dress. Or a new car. Or a new house. But rather an absolute standard, the Word of God, that as you read and study and pray and labor over it, you begin to know.
God. And as you know God, you love God. And as you love God, you want to be more like God. Therefore, you fellowship. And that's why it says, if we walk in the light, word of God, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. You've got to have fellowship through the book. That is why every Sunday, every Thursday, every time we're together, I point you back to the principles of the Word of God. There isn't one person that I meet with throughout the week that everything we don't do doesn't go back to that book. There isn't everybody that comes in to see me that I don't point them back to that book. Because that book is the key to your security. That book is the key to your salvation. That book is the key to your fellowship. The fellowship is the key to your joy. And I'm telling you, the fellowship and the joy is the key to your victory. Psalms chapter 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What a great passage. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. You want me to give you a Bob Alexander definition of my fellowship with God? I give you the Bible. Let me show you now how Bob Alexander takes the Word of God, which says, if we walk in the light as He is in light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. That's the doctrinal side of it. And let me show you how Bob Alexander makes a practical application of that to his life. One day I read through the Bible over in Psalm 119, and I found that very verse, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, light unto my path. Now that's pretty heavy doctrine. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, pretty heavy doctrine. If we walk in the light as He is in light, we have fellowship one with another. Then in my own personal life, I began to look at that thing and break it down. Because I was reading the Word of God and I was studying the Word of God because I wanted to have a relationship with God. Then one day it hit me. That Word is a lamp unto my feet, light unto my path. When I read the Word of God, because of my fellowship, that book becomes my reading light. It illuminates what I'm reading. Sometimes the world hurts you. People hurt you. Circumstances hurt you. And you feel all by yourself. And I realized that that Word of God was a heating lamp that warmed my soul in the cold old world winds. I realized that I had a path that I had to go down and the devil had laid some claymore mines, some, some booby traps, some punji stakes all the way down through there. And then I realized walking down life's road that through my fellowship and with that book and the light that it was, that that book became a safety light that I could see before I stepped on those landmines. I realized that I had a journey to go all through life, that God was going to take me all through life where he wanted me to go. And I had, then I began to realize that as I read my Bible and I got to know more about God in that book and I began to love God for who He is, not for what I thought He was, and I began to realize that on this journey, that Bible, through my fellowship, became my traveler's lamp. It showed me the way. So I went down through my life. I realized that the world was darkness and God was light. You know what our lives really are? I'm going to tell you what it is. At point A right here, you got saved. And point Z over here is where the Lord's going to take you home, either in the rapture or you're going to die. Now, in God's mind, He has your life mapped out as far as what He wants you to do from point A to point Z. You all understand that. He has it 
the blessings, the trials. It, it, nothing surprises God. Nobody runs into the throne room tomorrow morning and says, you know what happened to Bob Alexander this morning? Nobody. Nobody. And that, numerous, that fact is laid out numerous times in the Word of God, that the sovereign mind of God knows from point A to point B where He wants us to go, what He wants us to do. If you would look at a graph of your life, and we're great graph people today, we kind of do all kinds of chart things, you would find that your walk on that line probably goes like this. All your life. And then sometimes, now you're here. Now you're here. Then you're here. Some of you, you're like this. You know what those exaggerated moves mark? They mark the days you got off the mark that God wanted you to be on. You're out here in the world doing your own thing. When it comes to your life and my life as a Christian on the line of God, keep those things as tight to that line as you can. You know why? Because it's dark out there. And we are like little children. And all little children are scared of the dark. As long as you stay on the line, you're okay. You get out there, you're on your own. You know why? Because when I'm on this line, when I'm on this line, when I'm on this line, I got a night light that keeps me from being scared of what's in the dark. And every Christian's life, when you get home to heaven, if God graphs it out or charts it out, it's going to be how much you varied off that line. That's your fellowship. There is no fellowship outside of you knowing the Word of God. I'm sorry. You may think your fellowship is that nice warm feeling you got down inside when you do something nice for people. That isn't it. You may think fellowship is going to church and, you know, uh, doing this or doing that. That isn't it. Fellowship is purely based on what you did this last week with you and God in that book. It's as simple as that. And I think the most tragic thing in my life is I look back at the end of the week and I find out who or what I fellowshiped more than I did with God. And that's the tragedy in life for me. So you're going to see that chapter 1 defines for us what fellowship is. Now that should be clearly fixed in your mind. Now we're going to come to chapter 2. And in chapter 2 I'm going to show you what fellowship is based on doctrinally from the Bible. It says in chapter 2 verse 1 and 2, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Your fellowship with God and consequently your victory through that fellowship is based on two great doctrinal principles that are absolutely unheard of today. You don't believe me? If you don't believe me, just go to the next pastor you find and ask him to give you a Bible definition. Forget that. Ask him to give you any definition on the doctrine of propitiation. Just ask him. And there is no Christian on the face of this planet. Now, you young Christians, I'm cutting you slack because you're learning. So don't even take this personal. But there ain't no Christian that's been saved 5, 10, 15, 20 years that's going to convince me that you understand biblical fellowship if you cannot understand the doctrine, one, of propitiation, and two, the doctrine of the advocacy of Jesus Christ in your life. Your fellowship is based on it. That just goes to show you how little God's people know about the Word of God that they've been saved 5, 10, 15 years 
going to churches all their life and probably never in the whole time they were there heard ever a message on the great doctrine of propitiation or the doctrine of the advocacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two of the fundamental doctrines that everything in the Bible is based on and you cannot have fellowship with God if you don't understand. Now let's talk about them quickly here. Doctrine of propitiation. The word propitiation means to reconcile two opposing parties. In this case, me and God. God is holy, I am not. There's no way God can fellowship with me. Well, my goodness, back in the Old Testament, when God the Father came down and walked through the nation of Israel's camp, He had to order them to get everything unholy out of the camp because God's holy presence could not walk in the midst of unholiness. And if there's anybody in this world that is unholy, it's me and you. And God, in that sense, cannot fellowship with you and me. He cannot. There's no way that a holy God can come down and fellowship with me as a sinner because something had to reconcile me to God and that reconciling factor was the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary to appease God's wrath and to pay for sin that would allow me to fellowship with Christ after I got saved. Because the only way God can fellowship with me is through Christ. That's why when I got saved, and you find it from one end to the other in the book of Ephesians, you find the phrase, in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. When you got saved, you got in Christ. And that is the only way God can fellowship with you. That's why Christ had to come down and die. And when he come down and died and did that and provided a way for you and for me to become in Christ, he became the propitiation. He reconciled God to man by the death of Christ on the cross. And boy, I'm telling you, if you don't got that down, you're not, only even, not even in the ballpark, you're not even in the parking lot. I'm telling you, that is an absolute, a central doctrine. And then the next one is the advocacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. You got a lot of people today that believe they can lose their salvation. You got people today that believe all kinds. You got people that believe they don't sin anymore after they're saved. You got them on both ends of the spectrum. In either case, you've got somebody who does not understand the doctrine of the advocacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. An advocate is a go between. And the Bible tells me in many, many places in the Bible that in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, that the Spirit itself maketh groanings before the throne of God that cannot be uttered. That God himself, that Christ Himself is the go-between between me and God to reconcile the differences between my stupidity and God's holiness and perfectness. And He is my advocate. He's the one that takes care of me, takes care of my salvation, and takes care of everything in my life that I can't take care of myself. Christ is the go-between between God and man. He took my side because of the blood. You find it in Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2 and 3. It's in an Old Testament case, but it's the same picture. The Bible says there was a day when Satan went before the... And, or the angels, sons of God went before the throne and Satan also. And when Satan went up there, he does what his job is right now as accuser of the brethren. And he says to God, what about Job? For God said to him, but then he says, you know what? That guy will curse you to his face because he only loves you because of things. Ah, devil was banking that Job loved God like you and I do. Now, you know why that can't happen today? 
I'll tell you why that can't happen today. Now, the devil is still the accuser of the brethren. But he isn't accusing you and me. If he's accusing anything today, he's accusing Israel. He ain't accusing you and me. You know how I know that? Go, let me give you a scenario. Up in heaven. Let's force fast forward it. There's a day in heaven when all the sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also comes in, and he comes up there to the throne, and he says to God the Father, he says, Hey, what about Bob Alexander down there, huh? Huh, what about him? God doesn't say a word. Doesn't say a word. He says, What about that old Phil Christie guy? God doesn't say a word. He says, What about that Sandy Madej? God starts to say something, but then stops. <laughs> Sandy, you know I was not going to pass that up. Because I saw you sleeping. I saw your eyes droop. No, I'm just kidding. Sandy never sleeps. God doesn't say a word. You know why God doesn't say a word? Because right to the right of his throne stands up a man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, Father, forget what he says or whatever he's going to say because it doesn't make any difference. Because Bob Alexander, Sandy Madej, Phil Christie, on such and such a day, put their life and trust in my death on the cross, and they're in me. And Father, when he makes an accusation about Bob Alexander, Phil Christie, or Sandy Midday, or any other Christian, he's making his accusation against me. God says, good enough. Next, he can't get you. You know why? Because you're in Christ. That's the advocacy of Jesus Christ. He's the go-between. When the devil says, what about Bob Alexander? The Lord says, what about him? He got saved and he's under the blood and he's in me. You got something else you want to talk about? Or were you on your way out? Nothing else to say. Two of the greatest doctrines in the Bible, my friend. You have got to know those. That in chapter 2, verse 15, another great verse. It says in chapter 2, verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man, boy, a lot of people needed to be here to hear this today. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Devil knows when to keep them in bed. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Got one more thing I was going to say, but I'm going to pass on that one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. But if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but of the world. Three things in this world that will get you tied up. Three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And you know what they'll do? They'll destroy the fellowship you got with God, and that's how God takes it away. Let me tell you something. Genesis chapter 3, when the devil wanted to come down and destroy the plan of God and take that thing out, destroy Adam and Eve, you know what he did? He hit them with these three strings right here. And old Evie baby, she blew three all three of them. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when she saw that tree, and the Bible says that it was good for food, lust of the flesh, pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, desire to make one wise, pride of life, down she went. You ever notice in Matthew chapter 4 when the devil came to the Lord Jesus Christ and tried three ways to get him to tempt him? It was through the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The way he always does it. Hey, any Christian young man or young lady, mom or dad, who hit the skids and loses their fellowship with God and goes their own way no matter how they try to pretend they're serving God, but it's sticking out all over you that it's things in life you're looking at. Went down one of these three ways or a combination of these three or in some cases one, two, and three. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Boy, you better get it. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message. Get the message. Here it comes. 
God is light, ladies and gentlemen, and in Him is no darkness at all. And the old word will take your fellowship faster than you can get it. That's why I told you earlier, and I'm telling you again, when you get saved, get as far away from the world as you can. If you've got friends that are still in the world, try to win them to Christ, try to be their friend, but you know what? You go your own way. Chapter 3, great chapter on our resurrection body and the day God comes for us, the rapture of the church. He says in 3.1, we talked about this Thursday night. You see, when you come Thursday night, you get a distinct advantage over the people that just show up on Sunday because we went through this whole thing and you got a lot of meat that I'm not going to be able to give you today. That's how God does it. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. What a great passage. Remember last week I told you about the three promises in the Bible. God gave a promise to save you. God gave a promise to keep you. And God gave a promise to come and get you. And this is a great promise on God coming and getting you. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, oh, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. That's why you shouldn't hang out with the world. Verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Right now I'm a son of God, but I still look like Bob Alexander, because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and numerous other places, the thing that's saved about me is inside, it's my soul. You see, look at verse 3. Every man that hath this hope, that's a promise, in him purifieth himself even as he's impure. That promise that someday God's coming for me is going to get me through tomorrow. When the world comes to an end tomorrow and all my problems come down on top of me and it seems like the world comes to an end or for you and you hit, the, you hit it at work and it's a bad day or this or that or something goes wrong in your life, you know what? The greatest thing that gets me through everything in life and every bad situation is, you know what? This is only temporary down here. There's coming a time, brother, when it's going to be incredibly a lot better. I mean, I'm telling you. That's why he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us in that day. It's an incredible. It's incredible. Then we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, this is something you all better get. It's part of your fellowship. It's a great chapter on not being deceived. And this, this concept is absolutely foreign today to most of God's people. Look at 4.1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Look at verse 6. We are of God, and he that knoweth God, there it is again, see that thing? Not loveth God. We are of God, and he that knoweth God heareth us. That he is not of God, heareth not us. Hereby know we, see that thing, there it is again, two times in one verse. Know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There shouldn't be, ever be a child of God, and I know some of you young Christians, and I keep putting you into this category because you're still growing and learning, and you're learning how to do it. But you've been saved 10, 15 years, there should be absolutely no confusion in your life about what's good teaching and what is bad teaching. There's, Bible says, try the Spirit. There is a Christian in Kansas City today, maybe other than 10 people, probably, that know what that means and know how to do it. Try the Spirit. Bible teaches four spirits on this earth. 
And whether you know it or not, man can have three of the four. You have an animal spirit, man can't get that. You have your human spirit, you all have that. You have the devil's spirit, people get that. And then you have God's spirit, you get that when you get saved. Now here's how it works. There's no reason for a child of God to be confused. Romans chapter 8 verse 16 says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Here's how it works. I'm saved. I'm saved. Because I'm saved, I have the Holy Spirit of God living. It's just not complicated. I, when the day I got saved, the Holy Spirit of God got inside me. It's living inside me. God wrote me a book, my own manual. That book was also written by the Holy Spirit of God. So now I have the Spirit of God in me. I have the book that that Holy Spirit of God wrote that everything wants me to know. And now it's not dependent on me to understand that book. Why? Because that word, that book, is a what? It's a reading lamp. See? When I open it up, the Holy Spirit of God turns on the lights and shows me what He wants me to see. When I go to church... When I come to Thursday night Bible study, when I come to Sunday morning, what I do for you is I show you how to use that lamp in all the different scenarios. You get it a little bit farther along, and I'll show you how to take out that little 40-watt bulb you got right now and put a three-way in. You can crack that sucker all the way up 120. I mean, you'll turn this on, boom. That's some light, boom. That's some more light, boom. Well, that's a lot of light. That's what the Word of God does as you grow. Right now, the majority of us are working with a 40-watt bulb light bulb. Some of you, it got burnt out. You need to be replaced. I can do that for you too. No extra charge. <laughs> when you get a little bit farther on, boom, up to the next one. 60-watt, 100-watt. Wow! Next one, boom. And then one of these days, you're going to come down and open up that book and turn on that old reading lamp, and God has done the nastiest trick in the world. He took out that little three-way and put a flood lamp in it. And boy, the whole thing just becomes into view. Holy Spirit of God living inside me. Holy Spirit of God wrote that book. The Bible says that that Spirit bears witness with my Holy Spirit inside me that I'm saved. You know how I know I'm saved? Because when I read that book... The witness of the Spirit comes from that book and the spirits that wrote it to the spirits inside. And that Holy Spirit says, you got it, son. You got it. You got it. You got it. Your fellowship. You got it. You got it. When I go hear somebody preach, turn on the radio, turn on a news broadcast, turn on this, turn on that, because of the Spirit of God's in me, and I'm having fellowship, and I'm walking in that light as He is in the light, and I'm having fellowship with Him, when I hear something that does not go along with the Spirit that wrote that book, that the Spirit's in me, it sticks out like a three-headed monster. See how easy it is? You ain't going to confuse me about what the Bible says. You ain't going to confuse me on tongues. You ain't going to confuse me. You know why? I got a book that bears witness with my spirit. Now, you want to get that same place? It isn't something that God gave Bob Alexander. It's something that any man and woman can have if you're willing to get to know him before you try to love him. It comes from knowing what the book says and how the book will impact your life that when you come to a point in your life, you're going to be, let's face it, you're going to be confronted with all kinds of things out there. Somebody says, well, you shouldn't judge. Hey, pal, he that's spiritual judges all things. I'm supposed to prove all things, the Bible says. 
The Bible says there's some people in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, they get blown about by every wind of doctrine. Everything they hear is what they believe. Or when they hear it, they don't know what to do with it. So some slick little gal or some, some, some slick little guy can come in there and twist it and turn it around and you don't even know what you're doing, so you fall for it. You know why? You don't have the ability to try the spirits. That's what you got to do. Hey, there's more to that Bible and learning it and just telling you what you can't do in life. That book is your safety lamp. It's your traveler's lamp. It's your safety light. It shows you where the pitfalls of bad doctrine and bad teaching and bad religions that it doesn't line up with the spirit that wrote that book and the spirit that's inside you. I'm telling you, it's so easy, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Then chapter 5, and we're done. Chapter 5 is one of the great chapters in all the Bible that shows the Trinity in chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verses 5, 6, and 7, and 8. Now we're going to focus, uh, uh, focus on verse 7. It says in verse 7, Now there are three that bear... And you, you, you might know that it's John's book because John, I told you this, that the foundation, the fundamental concept of all Bible Christianity is based on God and God who God is and God is a trinity. So it, it, it doesn't strike me. And I'll tell you what, in the Gospel of John, it tells you that, that Jesus and God are one too. But here, it, it's undeniable. It's undeniable. And it says in verse 7, there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Now we know the Word is Jesus Christ from John chapter 1 where it says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there is the clearest verse in the Bible that tells you that God is a trinity. There is no other place that you can go that says it that exact. And you know the devil hates that? That's why every new Bible in the market takes out that verse and says it shouldn't be in your Bible. You got to an NIV, you'd go down to that verse and it would be a little note in there and says that that verse shouldn't be in your Bible and it's out. You know why it's out? Because the devil don't want you to believe it in the Trinity, that's why. I'm going to tell you right now, there's only one set of manuscripts in the history of the world that ever have been that's had 1 John 5 verse 7 in it and there's a line out of Antioch that your King James Bible come from. You know why the Roman Catholic Church and all those groups back there hated those Waldensians and those Albigensians? One of the reasons is because they had an old Latin and an old Syriac that had 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 in it. But see, you've got to get that so you can try the spirits. Greatest verse in the Bible. Now, if you give that verse to somebody and somebody rejected that. You know what you got? You got somebody that sees the Spirit in you, the Spirit in the Word of God, puts the two together, and they say, no thanks. Now, why would you even mess with that? In your most basic form, you've just got a lesson in how to try the spirits. That Spirit in that person isn't lining up with the clearest, <laughs> the clearest verse in the Bible that our kids over in the elementary could get down. Then lastly, chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13. Three of the greatest verses in all of the Bible that says when you can know for sure you're saved. And this is where your fellowship leads you to. I told you. Your fellowship is based on your joy and your time in the Word of God. And through that fellowship you get the victory. You get the victory because you know you've got the joy down in your heart. And you know that this whole thing is temporary. 
And from that, you know that no matter how bad it gets on this life, you have one thing that the rest of the world doesn't have that you know absolutely beyond any shadow of a doubt, if you keel over dead, you're going to heaven. Now, just as 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 was the greatest verse on the Trinity, here's the greatest verse that in the whole of the Bible that you can know for sure you're saved. Verse 11. Now, this is the record. God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe in the name of the Son of God. Real simple. Verse 11 says you've got a record. I don't know of anything in this world that you buy that you don't get a record of. You go down and buy gas, you get a receipt. That's your record. You go to Walmart, you buy something, you get a receipt. That's your record. You pay your taxes, you get a receipt. That's your tax receipt. Got to have it to get your license plate. You're everything in life. You get born, you got a birth certificate. That's your record. I don't know what anything in life. I mean, you, 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 you lose your birth certificate, you can't do anything in life. You can go to, go to college someplace and everyone will say, let me see your birth certificate. You'll get, you'll get a job, they're going to say, I want to see your birth certificate. And the fact that you're standing there and saying, I don't have it, but here's proof that I'm bored, that I'm here, doesn't cut it with them. They want to see the record. The record is important. And for you as a New Testament born-again shout of God, God knew how important it was that you knew for sure you're saved, so God gave you a new birth certificate. The Word of God. It's your record through your fellowship, through knowing Him, through the joy that you can know in your heart. That's why he says these things, verse 13, I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that you have eternal life. And if you don't, the rest of the verse, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. See, this is why when I talk to people about the Lord, I don't ask you if you're saved. That's a waste of time. I don't ask you if you've ever been born again. I don't ever ask you if you had an experience with Christ. Waste of time. I don't ask if you've been baptized. I don't ask you where you go to church. I don't care. Those things are an absolute waste of time. The issue is, if you kill over dead right now, do you know in your heart, without any question, you'd go to heaven? That's the issue. I got a book that says you can. That's, the, that's it. And when you go through the trials and the tribulations of life, God gets you through that tribulation by giving you the victory. The victory is based on your fellowship, knowing God. The fellowship produces the joy that you don't care that they're going to cut my legs off and kill me this afternoon. How do you think that those Christians, back in the dark ages, to the tune of 60 million of them, got butchered and killed by the false religions that wanted them to deny Christ. How do you think they got through the oppression that, and I know we can't understand that. Man, the biggest struggle we go through today is, oh, honey, the air conditioner broke. We all had to sweat today. Well, it was tough. Oh, honey, it was a rough day at work. What happened? Oh, the computers were down. We all had to think. Oh, it was a terrible thing. That's the struggles we go through. I'm talking about paying for what you believe with your life. There's only one thing that gets you through that kind of stuff. Walking in the light is here than the light. Only one kind of stuff gets you through that. That's all based on knowing Him. And knowing Him produces the fellowship. And the fellowship produces the joy. And the joy produces the, hey, you know what? Do what you got to do. Do what you got to do. Boy, there is story after story after story of those old men and women that died and paid the price, brother, that they burned them at the stake. The old 
inquisitors were waiting for them to scream out in mercy and they're in there singing. They got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. They burnt, <laughs> they burnt old John Huss at the stake one time and the old Pope come over, the old inquisitor come over and he said, John Huss, he says, I'm going to separate you from the church militant. Meaning he was going to kill him. John looks back and says, you go ahead and separate me from the church militant, but you'll never church separate me from the church triumphant. Can I help you light the match? Credible. You know why? They had the fellowship. The fellowship produced the joy. They had the assurance. They knew how to try the spirits. And they knew more about God because they knew Him. They really loved Him because they knew Him, all based on the Bible and learning the Bible. And when you get to that point in your life, God shows you through this old lamp, this old light, He shows you how you got the assurance to know if you die right now, you're going to be with Him. Every head bowed and every eye closed.